This is part two of our episode on Back to Black, retelling Black radicalism for the 21st century. We're continuing our conversation with Kehinde Andrews, one of the leading Black political voices in Britain today. He is Associate Professor in Sociology at Birmingham City University, co-chair of the Black Studies Association and of the Harambe Organization of Black Unity, a regular writer of opinion pieces for The Guardian, Independent, and Ebony magazines, and editor of the series Blackness in Britain. Andrews was also the first Black Studies professor in the UK and led the establishment of the first Black Studies degree in Europe. In part two of this episode... Kehande and I discuss systemic racism in academia, the future of the Black Lives Matter movement, and much, much more. Take a listen. The real difference between America and Britain is Britain offshored its colonial violence to the Caribbean. And if you look at the Caribbean, it's worse. Actually, the police are far more violent and kill far more people in places like Jamaica. Like, it's terrible. The police are like, the, like yeah, I mean, it's a whole different level. So if you look at Jamaica where the slavery happened in the British Empire, it's, it's actually a lot more similar than we, we would think. But America was a settler colony. So it had to have dealt with black people within the nation state. I mean, black people outdate most European migration into United States. So there's, they've always been dealt with, the violence has been very much, the violence against African-Americans is very much a part of the US nation state formation. That's why the police carry guns, right? That's why it's more violent, more generally compared to Britain. So it's the same problem. It's just that America's a more extreme version of it because it's a settler colony and generally because America is just Europe on steroids, right? A lot of Europeans <laughs> go to, no, this is what happens, right? A lot of Europeans go to a place and act like barbarians and create a state, right? And that, that's, that's essentially what you get with America. So America's quite good to understand race relations because it's so extreme, but it's not different. It's just an extreme version of the same thing that we're facing in, in Britain. Right, and it's sort of an out of sight, out of mind situation. The violence is is at the same level, but if it's not happening, it's not part of your na- national identity formation, as you said. That that violence kind of that violence existed on this land, and there are Americans that are descendants of that violence living here. Whereas the violence that was happening because of the British Empire, like happened thousands of miles away. I don't know. It's I find that the whole Windrush scandal in the UK is like an interesting experience of that coming, the sort of British empire coming back to bite itself like on British soil, you know? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, that's what we're seeing with Windrush is there's chickens coming home to roost generally with the, that's what's happening in Europe. The immigration thing is, it's the immigrants are coming from places that Britain used to colonize, right? Like, so whether it be the Caribbean or Asia. And then you can really see the racism starting to play out now. So because black people haven't been here for as long in big numbers, we haven't had to have this conversation about race. We haven't had, you haven't necessarily seen it all the time. But you do then start this, you know, you see the patterns of segregation in the cities. You see the way the police work. And then you see the immigration laws. And Windrush is the perfect example of it where we're supposed to be, well, this is what I would say about Windrush is we were never citizens. I'm not sure we're still citizens. We were colonial subjects. And Windrush is the perfect example of that second-class citizenship status where even if you have the right to be here, that can be revoked at any time, right? So it is showing us what the logic of the British Empire is. Right. And so just to give some context, I think a lot of Americans aren't actually aware of the 
Windrush generation and the scandals that have been happening recently. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so Windrush, Windrush is the name of the ship that carried the first, was that the first, the wave of mass migration from the colonies doesn't start until after the Second World War. So in 1948, the SS Windrush brings 400 people from Jamaica to Britain. And that seemed to be the starting point of between the 48 and like now there's been millions of people have migrated in from Caribbean, Africa, and Asia. So the Windrush generation is that generation from 48 until they started to change the laws. So <laughs> often in the story is the idea that we were invited to come to build the nation. The actual Windrush was not invited. It was because the Caribbean was really part of Britain. And I think this is what gets lost a lot of the time. My dad was born in Jamaica, but Jamaica was part of the British Empire. So his first passport is a British passport that just said Jamaica on it. Because it was actually part of the nation, they couldn't stop the ship from coming. They actually wanted the Labour left, left-wing government wanted to stop the ship, but they had no legal recall to stop it. So they just came and then other people followed. And eventually there is the, the need to rebuild the country. And like we have the National Health Service and lots of Black and Asian people get to work as nurses, etc. So that's kind of the Windrush generation. And they had legal, because of the laws, they had legal right to come into the country. But there's a real strong shift in the 60s, which is we don't want these black and brown people anymore. They start to change the laws. And it's right by 1983, they've basically cut off a lot of the legal routes to come in. But there's a group of people who got caught up in a time where they migrated into the UK legally as children that didn't have the paperwork. Remember, this is a time when you could come on a parents' passport, you come on your relative's passport. So a lot of people never had any paperwork to prove they should be here. But they've been here for 50 years. But under this government, actually, they bought in what they call the hostile environment. They're trying to get rid of illegal... Immigration becomes a big thing in the UK, and they're trying to get rid of illegal immigrants. You have to have documents, and if you don't have documents, you can be deported and you lose your jobs, etc. So a whole way, what swathe of people don't have the right documentation to prove they sh- they're allowed to be here and have lost their jobs, lost their benefits, been deported. And it was a really big scandal. Just 20, I'm not sure of the year, but like a few just very recently became a massive scandal, which hasn't actually been resolved because the government's supposed to be paying um, compensation, but hasn't paid any, I think it's paid like 500 pound compensation, something some ridiculous like that. So it's still an ongoing scandal at the minute. Yeah, I mean, it's so despicable, but I'm not surprised it hasn't been sorted because it's basically the same. I think it started with Theresa May, but it's, obviously the same. It's still the Tories. This got worse. <laughs> Theresa May's government was terrible, but this one, Boris Johnson, Preeti Patel, uh, second. So yeah, this, this government has had our two first non-white home secretaries. Unfortunately, they've carried out the most racist policy, the most racist immigration policy we've seen for a generation. Yeah, and unfortunately, the two only women in power in the UK have also been absolutely like austere <laughs> nightmares. It's, it's a real bummer. <laughs> It is. <laughs> this is quote unquote representation, but yay representation. <laughs> I mean, it does show you the problem. It does show you the problems of some of those. But that's, that's the problem with those more liberal ideas, right? You just you want to get black faces in in high places, but they don't really work out like that. It's, always, it's about. It's why I always say systems. It's not. It's not about diversity. Was always a mistake. I mean, not a mistake, but a mistake to see diversity as a solution. Obviously, you want to have diversity, but. There have always been black and brown people who've been reactionary and quite happy to support racist regimes. And that's how colonialism worked. So it's not really a surprise to see it happening today. No, obviously people, if they're in positions of power, they're going to unwittingly reproduce the same racist and misogynist structures that they're victims to. But I don't know, going back to this idea of the BLM movement being quite liberal, 
being quite American-centric, you actually started the first Black Studies program in Europe. And I'm wondering if you looked to the U.S. or other places where Black Studies programs already existed, but also, like, what is your definition of Black Studies in light of how U.S.-centric that idea has been? Did you use other frameworks to create a new kind of identity formation? Or what were some of the considerations that you had? Yeah, so Black Studies... Yeah, we were definitely inspired by the U.S. Obviously, like Black Studies has a 50-year history in the U.S. We often quote Nathan Hare's piece on Black Studies, The Battle for Black Studies in 72. That movement's really important and actually mirrors a lot of what's happening in the U.K. So because the demographics are very different, we now have a critical mass of black and brown students in the universities who are pushing, who are looking around going, what, we got into the uni, you let us in, but what are you teaching us, Right which is essentially what happened in the Black Studies movement in the 60s, where access happened and people were like, ah, this is terrible. And so we definitely inspired by a lot of that. Having said that, I just contributed to a special issue in the Black Scholar, the oldest Black Studies journal in the States, where I didn't title it. They, they gave it the title, What Was Black Studies? So I think there is, and there's a general consensus in the States that the, if you look at the early movement for Black Studies, which was heavily influenced by Black Power Movement, Heavily international, like I think, but like the idea of blackness, maybe not heavily, maybe not, that's, that's a bit, and not everywhere heavily international, but it, certainly there was a kind of internationalism, a black power supported by the Panthers. There was a real political engagement with not just saying we need to get black people in, because black studies was never just supposed to be a diversity project. We just need to get black people in the university. It was about changing what the university is, the science of liberation, bringing the community into the university doing work that's supposed to connect to the struggles outside. If we're honest, that hasn't completely disappeared in the States, but it has largely dissipated. And African-American studies often is a black version of those studies, right? It's not that kind of radical component of it isn't always and maybe not usually there even in the States, I think. I don't want to be too critical because I know a lot of people in African-American studies and there's a lot of good work being done. <laughs> but if we're honest, it's become part of the furniture, right? Like Harvard has African-American studies. That's great. Is it this radical community? No, right? Which it should tell us something. But on the other hand, so we have been influenced and then, then also in the UK, I'd say we don't have, Black Studies is new in the UK university, but it's not new in the UK. And there has been, my first book was about the Black Supplementary School movement, which is we often call Saturday schools, which the community organized because the racism in the mainstream schools was so bad. Kids weren't getting any education. The Black Power movement that my parents were part of was largely about that things like Saturday schools, the bookshop movement, you know, importing in different books and knowledge, getting speakers from around the world, really like Amakal Cabral, people from the States, people from the Caribbean would come through. So there is a rich tradition of this political black studies off campus. And I guess that has been the real bedrock of what we've done in the university where we've just take, essentially taken that knowledge and says let's put that into the university and that's heavily influenced by the state stuff but also Caribbean Africa just broadly across Africa and the, and the diaspora. Right and so I guess I'm just wondering like how do these programs not become part of the furniture as you just said because obviously places like Harvard know. or Oxbridge <laughs> are the pinnacle of American and British imperialism. They're the bedrocks, the sort of institutions where a lot of these ideas come to fruition. I mean, how, I guess it's the same question as how does radicalism exist within any of these oppressive structures, but how do you ensure, or what are your considerations for ensuring that Black Studies programs don't just become part of the furniture? (laughs) 
Yeah, it's my biggest fear, to be honest. I think there is definitely a, a route where, because even in even even the way that we got black studies, like if I'm honest, it was mostly about neoliberalism. So in the UK, until I mean in the last twenty years, they used to be free to go to university. The state paid for everything, and then they gradually started to bring in more fees. By the time I went, it was the equivalent of probably two thousand dollars a year. Then it went up, and then it went up, and now it's nine thousand pounds. So what's that like fifteen thousand dollars? Something like that a year for people to go to university. But it's not a coincidence that we got black studies the same year that students started paying full fees because prior to that, there was a cap on student numbers because the government was paying. They weren't paying for black studies, right? That was never going to happen. When now the students pay their whole fee, basically, that's allowed the university to say, well, yeah, yeah, you can do a black studies course. Why not? More students for us. So it's not like we got it because the uni changed or decided this was a great, wonderful, critical idea. They did it because they wanted money. Simple as that. And so the logic would be, you have a course, it's popular, we can just run run out the same course. And there's a huge problem in the sense that we're all trained in whiteness. Like my, my PhD trained me to do white research, that's what it did, right? So where do you get, the biggest problem we actually had at the University of Black Studies is where do you find staff who can teach black studies? Because it's not the diversity project. It's not just any black person can come in and say, oh, we're going to teach black studies. There is a different method of doing it. It's, it's about connect, the, the methods connected, the community connection, that kind of political connection. That's not impossible, but almost impossible to maintain while trying to navigate through these white institutions. So unfortunately, the, likely, the likelihood is that you end up with the kind of neoliberal black studies, which is disconnects the radical stuff, disconnects the community and becomes part of the furniture in the way that a lot of African-American studies has. So I think, yeah, I'm trying to think, what did we do? So what, we haven't thought about that. I think one of the things that I don't, why I quite push and sometimes when I, I can be quite dogmatic about it, black studies has to have the community component. So it can't just be defined as anything to do with Africa and African diaspora. That It can't just be that. It has to be saying we're doing a different methodology. We're connecting community. It's about doing different kinds of research, about being engaged in community and saying if that if it doesn't have that, it's not black studies. And then trying to teach that as a methodology and a way of doing things differently so that you have people who can who can work in the university and pick that up. I mean, that's, I guess, the limits of what you can do. But there is a bigger question of if we want to have this radical black studies, is the university the place for it? I mean, honestly, uh, it's an experiment and, and the, the challenge is, that I have on a day-to-day basis at work are probably suggested that it might be better off outside the university than inside. Yeah, I mean, I, it makes a lot of sense when you put it this way, but I just, I didn't even make that connection of the emergence of Black Studies programs happening in the UK at the same time that the fees rose for everybody because obviously so many social justice quote-unquote social justice issues are in vogue and the neoliberal institutions are able to capitalize on and profit, yeah, profit off of something that elicits yeah, a real social need. And it's just, it's really depressing. But, it, is, yeah. it is, but I, I don't know. I do wonder, because I've said before, I don't know, I, I would be, I think I might have failed if I'm still an academic in five years. I think maybe, they're not, not, not that there's no value in it, just that if you want to do radical, revolutionary work, I don't know if he can do I don't think he can do it in the university. I, I, if I think, if MacMost was alive now, he could definitely get a job at the university. But I think if he did, it wouldn't, he would no longer be Malcolm X, right? Like, Malcolm's Malcolm because he's in the struggle. He's not an academic. Like, there's a reason why, there's a reason why Malcolm's Malcolm. And the same for the Panthers, the same for Claudia Jones, the same for, actually, I think what we're actually doing now is we're institutionalizing the next Claudia Jones. And I don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I, I take your point. I'm not sure either. We all have personal stakes in it existing, but I also am really unclear of whether these real radicalism can take place in a university setting. Yeah, I don't know if Malcolm X would like be part of an institution. <sighs> I don't, um, I don't know, but if he was, it wouldn't be a good thing. I think that's definitely true. That, that, that if he if he actually was, and I, this is this is what actually like if we look at if a lot of the the kind of canon of the course that we teach, there's not really academics. I mean, we teach academics more to criticize them rather than to, <laughs> rather than anything else. It really is Malcolm Panthers, Claudia Jones, Black and Krumah, Amakar Cabral, and in a very real way, because that knowledge is produced in struggle rather than in the university. It's better. Like this is a better way to understand the world. Malcolm, Malcolm gives you the best description of what racism looks like because he's in the struggle to combat racism. That's very difficult in a position where I'm in the universities. The university is a bubble, right? A bubble defined largely by whiteness, where our audience isn't the community. Our audience is usually internal. It's usually white as well. I think if you look at the methods we learn and the key reference we have to go through. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a legitimate place to produce radical knowledge. But I guess it's ironic coming from me who works at the university. So I don't know. There's a contradiction, right? Yeah, I mean, there's this idea. I wonder if it's it's applicable here. It's sort of reminding me of this conversation that's happening in the burgeoning socialist movement in the, in the States. So like the Democratic Socialists of America, for instance, are the biggest socialist group in the U.S. now. And a lot of them, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for instance, are socialist identified, but then also operate within the Democratic Party. And there's this strategy that they call the dirty break, which is the whole idea of kind of sleeping with strange bedfellows using the establishment system to kind of create a lot of harm reduction, push for things like the Green New Deal, but like with the intention eventually of breaking off and creating a separate socialist party. So I wonder if that sort of idea of the dirty break can exist for like a black studies program within a university system. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just sort of reminded me of that a bit. Yeah, I think in theory, I mean, what I always say to everybody is that we're colonizing the university. We're not trying to decolonize the university. And the university is what it is. And nothing that I'm going to do or we're going to do is going to change the university. It's a terrible institution. But can you, can we get a space in the university which still ha- which has too much power and recognition because of lots of bad reasons, but we have privilege and can we do something with that? But we should always be doing that to subvert what the university is. Is that possible? Like the, the, the metaphor I used the other day was, if you think about the role of the slave preacher, it's not that different than the role of the professor. Like the purpose of the preacher on the plantation was to pacify the masses, right? It was to keep everybody controlled. It was to teach a particular kind of religion. And if you're honest, lots of this is what professors do. Largely creates this kind of knowledge which keep, maintains the status quo. And, you know, most of the slave preachers, that's what, that's what they did. They just carried on with the system, maintained it, perpetuated it, took the sort of reward you got from doing that. But also, if you look at a large amount of the slave rebellions, were started by slave preachers because the slave preacher had a different level of access, was the only one of the enslaved who was allowed to read and took that reading and took a different interpretation, was the only one who was allowed to talk to large audiences, right? Usually the kind of congregation would have been, could have been banned, right? Was the only one who was allowed to travel between different plantations because they were trusted. So there's this kind of position that you can then use to subvert to create rebellion. And I guess this is actually probably my biggest discomfort about being in the university is that far too many of us are happy to maintain the system and not use our privilege 
to overturn it because we do have like there is what job could I have which I would have this much freedom to do largely what I like and some constraints on it but largely I can do what I like so the question is can you use those positions to ultimately subvert the system and isn't and that should be our responsibility but I, I don't think that many of us are using it in that way yeah I wonder it's sort of an impossible I mean, if it wasn't so difficult to answer, we would have answered it already. But yeah, I don't know. Like there's this idea of decolonizing the curriculum. I'm wondering, like, it kind of sounds like you don't, but like, do you believe it's even possible to decolonize the curriculum? <laughs> no, not to. As, I mean, no. no, I said that. Yeah, no, 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 that's not true. So if you go to Black Studies at BCU, it's a decolonized curriculum. 100% guaranteed. No doubt about it. Does that decolonize the whole university curriculum? Not at all. In fact, I think most people don't. Maybe I'm underestimating because I do think that the work we've done has actually had some impact on how race is seen generally, I think. I think. Don't know to what extent. But you do have now, there's lots of post-colonial theories, post-colonial scholars. There's, there's people doing great work and practice and, and producing stuff. But if you actually just generally look around what's, what's being taught, has that penetrated into the mainstream? No, maybe on a reading list occasionally, but not generally. Also, we have to recognize that the curriculum is just one part of it. It's not the whole thing. It's about the institution. It's about how it works. It's about who gets hired. For example, in, right. in Ireland, in Ireland, so the Irish the Irish University has started doing a thinking black module, no, writing black module for their English English degree, I think it is. And they just hired a white man to do it. It was never, never worked in anything to do with it. Black people. And it's like, well, this is this. I think the end point of this decolonizing curriculum would just be a lot of white people get jobs uh, uh, reading Fanon. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like there's been much systemic change. No, yeah, I take your point. I think it's obviously just one moving part within a much larger sort of monster machine of uh, of neoliberalism. So like, yeah, just changing the curriculum does not actually affect who gets to be on boards at universities. No one, it's not setting the fees yeah, for universities. Exactly. Like, there's all these other yeah. considerations. Yeah, the whole the whole purpose of what, there's this quote that I wish I had come up with, but I didn't. It's by Deepa Nayak, who works in London. And she says, the university is not racist. The university is racism. And they actually trace back the roots of racism, the idea that I'm not a human being. That's the university, that's the intellectual tradition of the Enlightenment, which is still the bedrock of the knowledge that's taught across the university. The universities until, what, the 60s were literally just for rich white men. Like, nobody else really went to uni, like, case, apart from a few exceptions. And now they've kind of opened up a little bit. We're supposed to see them as these beacons of progressiveness is not complete does it the unis if you think about all the things we'd complain about with how society understands race how society understands history the narrow eurocentric version of everything that we were given where does that come from it's produced by university knowledge equally today as it ever was so yeah if malcolm thought the revolution was being misused i mean he definitely he's mostly rolling around in his grave with the word the way that decolonization is being used you cannot decolonize the university curriculum without decolonizing the university and you can't decolonize the university without without revolution right <laughs> the university has a function in a society and until you change the society that's what the university is always going to do well especially if it's privatized but yeah i mean obviously a lot of this knowledge was produced at the university and often a lot of these these social sciences particularly were 
used as tools to justify the imperial project. Like I, I got a master's in anthropology and that's so much <laughs> of anthropology's history was like literally to justify eugenics. So, I mean, that, I don't know, that's an existential question that anthropology has too. Like, how does it even exist outside the confines of its origin or of its original status? But yeah. No, it's a good question, right? Because you look at the mechanics of the way that that has impacted what we still do. It hasn't really changed that much, I wouldn't argue. Like, it's, 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 a, it's a less offensive, but I'm not sure it's hugely changed. I mean, no, there's good practice. I always want to say this. There's always good practice in places. But if you look generally, I'm not sure we've made the change we like to, to think of. And if you think about the role the university has today, it's such a massive feature of neocolonialism. So I always say to people from the underdeveloped world, the worst possible thing you can do is come to a Western university and do a master's in development. Because that's literally just telling you how to destroy your country. Like the whole point of development studies is how to in- integrate yourself more into the Western economic framework, which is the problem. All right. So the university is still producing these ideas. They just they just don't always seem as, as offensive. Right. It's just cushioned in more acceptable politics and language of acceptable politics. But just you sometimes you have to take the lipstick off of the pig, right? Uh, <laughs> but I mean, so just on a final note, like in, in light of how ambivalent we both clearly feel about the university system and all the other kinds of institutions, I mean, what do you think is, is next for you? And what do you think is next for the BLM movement? I know it's sort of hard to forecast <laughs> these things, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are. <laughs> it would be nice. It would be nice if BLM, they, it really, what's really strong about BLM is lots of young people out on the streets, it's raised issues, and, it, and in fairness to BLM, has connected these, like, so it's not just about police, it's not just about the narrow issues, really tried to put this into a bigger framework, talks about reparations, talks about even revolution, if you, if you read some of the work. So I think if, and I think all these movements, as long as they continue with their ethos, they develop, right? So I could certainly criticize and say, look, starts off really liberal, etc. But you say with the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the economic analysis was really quite liberal. But what happens when you build it momentum and start to challenge the structure, you really realize what the structure is and then it shifts. And I think you can see that already, particularly with some of the chapters in, in the States and also in the UK as well. So I think you can see that there. And I guess the question is, can you keep that momentum and can it develop? I'm going to be hopeful and just give the hopeful prediction. We started the Harambee organization of Black Unity. In fact, Back to Black Art ends with this by saying, look, this is a vehicle for Black radicalism, which is basically just picked up the organization of Afro-American unity and said, look, Malcolm, a lot of people go in there saying, look, Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm. Malcolm, when he died, was actually doing a political project, like a very clear one that has a constitution and says we should do this, 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 and this. And for some reason, we just ignored it. So we basically picked it up and said, well, let's do this. And let's try and get more people engaged and try and get more people involved. If I'm 100% honest, if that's successful enough, I would not be an academic. I'll be, I'll be full-time organization because I think that that really is the way forward. And in doing that, we've also started Make It Plain, which is the kind of blog site that you can read different stuff and alternative stuff. Because we have to start having a completely different imagination, which isn't about how much success can we get in the system. It is about how do we build an alternative to this wicked system, because that's the only way you can get true liberation. Well, amen to that. And I can't wait to check up and see what you're up to in a few years and see if you're still a, a professor or if, you're, if you've committed to full-time organizing. Uh, um, unfortunately, the likelihood is I'll still be a professor and I'll probably be conservative and you could call me a sellout 
when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to come for you if that's the case. <laughs> I'm just going to play this this recording right back at your face. But uh, no, uh, I'm hopeful that that's not going to be the case. But <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, I'm trying to be positive. I'm trying to be positive. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show, Kahindi. This has been a real pleasure for me. And yeah, for everybody listening, I'm going to plug Black to Black in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you.